1: Welcome to the Midas Touch Podcast, Ben, Brett, and Jordy. We got an incredible podcast incredible episode. Incredible
2: podcast episode.
1: Incredible, incredible podcast, podcast episode. episode. Look, it's always a great day. It's always a great episode when you got John Heilman on the pod, executive Ooh. editor. Like, right? let's go, Jordy, executive let's go. editor. Let's go, Jordy. Right, executive, <laughs> executive editor, uh, executive editor at the recount. of The Circus on Showtime, which is in the second part of their sixth season, which just premiered this past weekend. It was great. Um, You saw they spoke to Gavin Newsom about the recall. They spoke about the politics of COVID um, and how it's been politicized. The Circus
2: is such an incredible show. Sorry to interrupt you, Ben. Sorry to pull it, Jordy, as the kids are calling it these days. But The the Circus is really just such a fantastic show. I mean, where else do you get a behind-the-scenes look at politics like that? The recording schedule that I hear about The Circus is like, the craziest shit you'll ever hear like you hear a little bit about that you hear a little bit about is that how i speak you Uh, do that you you kind
1: of have been doing on the podcast i've been noticing this a lot lately (laughs) you kind of have a radio voice where you're like and I've been, you know, I really think that the- sorry, That's I'll a little
2: talk. bit a bit of a recording schedule. That's I'm a little sorry, bit- I'm sorry, Ben. I'll talk. I'll speak very low for everybody.
1: No, you're yeah, doing sure. it. Just, I would you use know. your own
2: voice. That's all. That is my voice. This is my voice. This is this is a little bit of my voice over here, guys. This, this stays
3: in the pod. This is ridiculous. This is ridiculous, right? This is ridiculous already, right now. But already, I'm going to say- your
1: vote on this? Does Brett kind of do a little- and then I think a little bit, a bit, a bit about this thing. What
3: do you guys love? Uh, you know things? what? I don't have the great thing is I don't have to vote. You can't make me vote on this, so I'm not going to vote. But Jordy, the, the pacifist
2: say, here. Jordy, the non interventionalist. I love it. This but is, why the, this is just why? how I speak. When you do a show, you got to perform, you got to speak to the people, Ben. Come on. You, get, you know
3: this. Let's go. Let's okay, go, I really ben. want to talk ben, about my on. shirt. This is why I'm the favorite son, because you guys are jerks and you guys bully people. I need to talk about the like shirts, that.
2: because so Jordy is wearing a shirt right now that says favorite son on it. Where'd you get the shirt first? all?
3: What happened was I went to go visit our parents in New York. It was fantastic. We're vaccinated. It was a great trip. Okay. And because I went home and visited them, I'm like, you two lunatics, I am now the favorite son. So okay, as a parting but- gift, one of our parents, I won't say who, mom, got me the shirt.
2: Okay, but this the story doesn't make sense to me because I see in the back of Ben's room, and Ben did not go to New York, Ben also oh. has a shirt that says favorite oh. son hanging from his mantle back there. Um, here's the issue. I, I don't have one of these shirts. i never received one of these shirts.
1: Well, Brett, maybe you will, will not be getting one in the mail. <laughs> we just got to see uh, what the time frame allows. Uh, well, so maybe you'll get one, maybe you won't. <laughs> what, a <jerk. laughs>
2: what a What a total jerk. God forbid I try to hype up our
1: guest show. The circus. Oh, I'm excited to have John Hiomin on, but I am hyped up, Brett and Jordy. In all seriousness, Brett, I love you. Jordy, I love you. I want people to know that we joke around. Like there are a (laughs) lot of there are a lot of Twitter comments where they don't seem to get that that is just kind of me. When we tease each other, we love each other, and we're really not hurting each other. So just so you know, like that's how people say
2: they can't even listen to Ben anymore. Yeah, actually they,
1: I've like, really Ben's seen that
3: comment more. before.
1: Yeah, I've, I've seen a few comments recently. Wow, Ben's taking a dark turn. <laughs> He's so mean to Jordy. It's all part of the little teasing that we do, but we love each other. Um, we have a very
3: loving brotherly and by band. It, let me, and let me
2: just say, this isn't a new thing. This is how Ben has always behaved. This is how Ben would behave if we were doing this show or if we were not doing this show. This, this I mean, is this
3: how is, we show our love for each other. This
1: yeah, is we how we show love. Exactly. All right, let's talk about... What's in the news right now? Or what's not in
2: the news right now, because none of the broadcast networks seem to be covering that there was a coup attempt on the United States that is now documented in writing multiple times. And it seems like the only people speaking about this are us and the cable networks. But zero broadcast news networks gave even a second of coverage to this John Eastman memo, which laid out the Trump plan. For a coup to overthrow the united states government feels like that would be a pretty big issue maybe that would be in our history books that we would talk about that we would have investigations about but it's not even making the 6 p.m news what do you guys make of this and and what did the memo say then
3: oh
1: let's talk about who john eastman is he used to be a professor at chapman university which is actually out here in california At the same time, or while he was also a professor, he was the chairman of the Federalist Society's Federalism and Separation of Powers practice group. Federalist Society sure comes up a lot with all these people, huh? They they definitely, but but it'd be very clear this was their Federalism and Separation of Powers practice group, which I guess apparently means to then Professor Eastman, it's how the states can lead insurrections against the federal government or how subsections of states through phony electors who aren't actually elected by the states can lead coups against uh, the federal government. Um, So John Eastman, we all know and recall, he spoke at the January 6th. Um, insurrection. Later on in that day, he spoke with Steve Bannon, who we'll talk about in a little bit as well, and kind of encouraged the insurrection and egged it on while insurrectionists were still in the Capitol building. John Eastman got to retire. Uh, He wasn't fired. He was forced out, but he was a tenured professor at Chapman. So he still probably got a significant pension when he retired. Um, But what we now know is that John Eastman was integrally involved in, in the coup. He prepared a memo. He had met with Trump and Pence and all these you know, people in the Trump inner circle the days leading up to the insurrection. He prepared a memo very specifically of how the coup would take place. You always heard all the Trumpers, including Trump, talking about how Pence's job as the president of the Senate was not simply a ministerial task under the 12th Amendment, which it is a ministerial task. It's simply counting the votes that are given by the states, but they wanted Pence to essentially um, go through the states, declare an impasse at all the various states where Trump was jitting up phony voter fraud issues with state legislatures and others who were kind of aiding and abetting in the scheme, basically create an impasse and then allow for Trump to basically be crowned dictator. I mean, I can get into a little more nuance than that, but that's basically the plan was don't count the electors pursuant to the process of our electoral college claim that whole process is unconstitutional and then uh, anoint Trump to be basically president or dictator. This was yeah, a dictator. serious plan. Let's be
2: clear, dictator. Yeah. Because once you overthrow a duly elected president, once you overthrow the whole system by which our entire country is based upon for electing presidents, you have elected a dictator. You have appointed a dictator, and elections don't mean anything at that point, if all of a sudden the vice president could just pick and choose who the next president is. I mean, nobody, i will I guess 40% of the country does, nobody rational thinks that that is how the system should work. And this document is a damning indictment of what was happening leading up to January 6th. It's a damning indictment of the Republican Party, as even in this document themselves, they are relying on people. And these are people who come up in the document by name Ted Cruz, Rand Paul, to demand shifts in these rules so that they could appoint Donald Trump to be the dictator of America. And this is a lawyer who is not a fringe crazy lawyer in the Republican party. This is one of the main kind of lawyers who has come up in this fascist Republican party. This is the guy who was pushing forth this idea. And the fact is, to me, this is a document that lays out sedition. And this is somebody, Ben, and I, I, defer to you on your legal judgment here. Can you just give advice like this that runs so counter to the law as an attorney? Or should somebody like a John Eastman face disbarment? Should he face criminal charges for even suggesting this plan to the president of the United States?
1: You have a violation to and a duty to uphold the constitution and the laws and not to subvert the United States constitution. You take that oath as a lawyer when you become a lawyer Um, And Eastman not only prepared this memorandum, which was a memorandum of how to overthrow and topple democracy, but remember, he was actually on stage encouraging uh, the insurrectionists to attack the Capitol building as well. And so he was very much involved in all aspects of it. I want to talk about Bannon in a second, but I do want to view January 6th like this. January 6th was a stress test on the ability of our democracy to withstand an assault of a fascism. And we've seen this historically. You saw it in Italy, you saw it in Germany, you saw other bodies that had parliamentary processes that were then overrun by dictators, by Mussolini, by Hitler. And we see across the globe how fascism can creep in through democratic institutions. Our federal courts and our constitutional system of federalism and separation of powers, the ultimate irony there being that that's what Eastman claims that he was on the uh, board of for the Federalist Society. But our systems held in the stress test just barely. But you see the road map to how the GQP and insurrectionists would go at it again, how they would perfect their norms. And whereas for about a day after the insurrection, maybe two days, you had GQP members condemning it, they're now all for it. They're now pro-insurrection the same way they're pro-COVID.
2: And guys, I I gotta be honest with our audience here and, and with you guys and with everybody, but today at this moment, September 23rd, 2021, I am more fearful for our democracy than I was even on January 6th. I think Republicans have not only doubled, tripled, quadrupled down on the acts of that day and are actively participating in an insurrection as we speak. And that's why I give the media a hard time. And that's why I occasionally give Democrats a hard time and Merrick Garland a hard time, DOJ a hard time, because we have to act. Because every day that we don't act, we are giving these people a green light to commit more attacks. Whether like the one we saw on January sixth, or whether just you know through the legislative process, just totally destroying our norms, totally destroying our laws, and destroying our government from within. I think we are at a red alert right now. All the signs are there. So what are we going to do about it?
1: Right. You see the Surgeon General, that Death Santos appointed you have governor death Santis, who you know is the kind of heir apparent to trumpism florida is a total covid disaster right now and death Santis appoints a surgeon general who is against the idea of quarantining children after exposure to covid like you go above and beyond the mask mandates you go above and beyond vaccinations and now you're also additionally saying we're against vaccines we're against mask mandates and we don't even think there should really be any social distancing we don't think there should be any quarantine whatsoever your kids should basically die
3: this guy's so crazy ben that he's affiliated with ucla in some way Every time he goes on TV to do a TV hit, he has to disaffiliate himself. He says, "I'm not speaking on behalf of UCLA" and then spouts all of this anti-mask, anti-vax nonsense. It's scary. <laughs> let's 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 play the clip cuz it's a it's a funny clip actually. <laughs>
4: Oh, sure. Well, good morning and thanks for having me on. And, uh, and I, I have to say that um, I'm speaking for myself and,
3: and not on behalf of UCLA, but I'm very happy to be speaking
4: with you and, and your viewers.
2: <laughs> I got to say, I am not affiliated with UCLA. They do not support my beliefs at all because they do not mesh with the science, but I am here to speak with you. So let me proceed with a bunch of lies and bullshit and dangerous it's rhetoric crazy. about the vaccine. Here's
1: the thing, Brett. He's speaking, though, for he's the Surgeon General of Florida. Like he's not a private individual with, you know, that just spouting views on his own behalf. This is a person who sets policy. And you also have uh, Florida GOP Senator Manny Diaz, who's calling for all vaccine mandates, whether it comes to polio, mumps, rubella, any of the other significant
2: like horrible- is Bring back polio a winning fucking message for 2022 for Republicans. Bring back polio. Bring back rubella. This is what we want. We want all Americans to get infected, to look at the vaccine mandates. That Because this is what happened, I think. They were confronted with the fact that, oh, you realize that we do have vaccine mandates
3: and have had them yeah. forever. <laughs> and so and the like, logical conclusion was, let's get rid of all the other vaccine mandates. Yeah, okay. This isn't oh, the good. pro-life party. They're the pro-death party. And that's how they need to start being framed. I agree with you, Jordy. there 100%.
1: And it's just, though, how... Like when the GQP are unable to debate, they just rather than have an intellectual debate because their points are so intellectually dishonest, they just go, yeah, we we don't need vaccines for rubella or mumps or polio. It's all good. Let's bring those diseases back. It is the craziest, craziest position in the world, which Brett and Jordy brings me to um, the next point. Oh, I'll just mention one thing about Steve Bannon because I teased it and I'd hate to leave it hanging, but I don't think this would shock our listeners that Steve Bannon was discussing how to kill the Biden presidency and was meeting with Trump and others immediately before January 6th the language that he used is just so repulsive back then like we need to kill the Biden presidency while it's in its crib of infancy like it's like a disgusting I mean,
2: 66666 sick, 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 they, sick they literally people. said
1: something like that on yeah. the show on the Bannon podcast he confirmed it that he did say that and he did talk about how He wants to delegitimize the Biden presidency and how every day the GQP wants to do more and more efforts to, even if it means destroying our government, if that delegitimizes Biden, they don't care.
2: And that's why I feel like there's no way to read when you hear these statements that Bannon is saying, when you see this memo by john eastman at the federalist society when you see the clark memo which basically was laying out the way for georgia to decertify its election i remember those videos too you guys remember those videos of those fake electors trying to like bust in to those uh, meetings uh, back in uh, January, and uh, yeah, you yeah. remember that, were like, insane. But those were legitimate efforts that they were trying to take to overthrow the elections. And so, finally, the Democrats and the January Sixth Select Committee are issuing. They they say an, a blitz of subpoenas is coming, is the language that they're using for top White House aides. They said they're considering issuing a blitz of subpoenas. And I just want to say to the Democrats, do not consider this. Just fucking do it do it. Get these people under oath. Get Mark Meadows, Dan Scavino, Brad Parscale, Rudy Giuliani, Steve Bannon, Donald Trump, Donald Trump Jr. Get all these people under oath. And when they say no to the subpoenas, because they probably will say no to the subpoenas, arrest them and make them show up. I mean, it's ridiculous that you could just defy congressional subpoenas these days. They're acting like they are above the law, and we can't have people acting like they're above the law, because like I said earlier, what you're doing is you are enabling another coup. So happy to hear that they have a subpoenas planned. I hope they go from the considering stage to the
3: actual doing it stage very quickly. We need to act now. Absolutely. You know what's driving me crazy with our own party is the pump fake announcements. We we might do this, and then they don't file through. It drives me Insane. Do it. Shoot your shot.
1: Jordy was doing a pump fake. Uh, it's for gesture pump for fake. those listening.
3: And play basketball in a while.
2: In the words of uh, Ben, I know your legal nickname uh, has been Young Jedi. I think the Yo- I think the Yoda quote to link it back to you is "Do or don't do. There is no try" or something to that effect. And I think Democrats need to take the Yoda advice here and just do it, just make it happen. The Biden White House is leaning towards releasing information about Trump on January 6th. That is setting off a legal and political showdown with Trump and his people all saying now that we're not going to you can't release information about what we were doing on January 6th. We claim executive privilege and the Biden administration is going, uh, you're not president anymore. And overthrowing the United States government is not an act of a president. So you don't have any leg to stand on here. So it seems like the pressure is being ramped up here. It seems like the efforts by the January 6th Select Committee are being ramped up by the White House. We just need to start seeing some arrests. We need to start seeing some indictments. We need to start seeing some action because all these people. Right now, the Steve Bannons of the world, the Giuliani's of the world, the Trumps of the world, they think they got away with it and they could do it again. And they think that because that's basically what they've currently been told by our current government. And we need to ramp
1: up the pressure and let's bring in Heilman before bringing in John Heilman. I want to talk about Magic Spoon. You have all heard this. If you listen to the Midas Touch podcast that I love Magic Spoon cereal. Growing up, cereal, one of the best parts of being a kid. But I had to give it up because I realized it was full of sugar and junk and other stuff that you shouldn't really eat. So here was my dilemma. I need healthy cereal. I love cereal. What is it?
2: Boom. Magic Spoon, right Brett? <laughs> Boom is right. Everybody's been saying Ben's looking good these days on the on the video podcast. It's probably because of Magic Spoon because Magic Spoon cereal has 0 grams of sugar. 13 to 14 grams of protein, and only four net grams of carbs in each serving. It's only 140 calories a serving, and it's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, low-carb. I love the variety pack that I got. It has four flavors. It has the cocoa, the fruity, the frosted, the peanut butter. One of the things that I like doing, which I've said before, and I've been kind of doing this all week, is you mix the chocolate with the peanut butter. You create your own sort of peanut butter cup cereal. It's the best. Great move. It's really, really, that's that, that's an elite move right there. That's like a
3: pro Top tier. Top move
2: tier. right there. I, I really can't recommend Magic Spoon enough. I absolutely love magic spoon cereal you go to magicspoon.com slash Midas and grab a variety pack and try today and be sure to use our promo code Midas at checkout to save five dollars off your order and magic spoon is so confident in their product and they should be because it is incredible it's backed with a 100 happiness guarantee so if you don't like it for any reason they'll refund your money no questions asked so remember get your next delicious bowl of cereal at magicspoon.com slash Midas, and use the code Midas to save $5 off. That's magicspoon.com slash M-E-I-D-A-S. And thank you so much, Magic Spoon, for sponsoring this episode of the Midas Touch podcast.
1: Now let's bring in the one and only John Heilman, executive editor at The Recount, host of The Circus on Showtime, which is in the second part of its sixth season, which premiered this past Sunday. John Heilman, welcome to the podcast.
4: Yo, boys, good to see you. It's like I feel like I'm in the presence of greatness, and you know, <laughs> oh, you know, stop nothing, it, oh, nothing, stop. nothing, nothing that feels more modern today than sitting in front of three white guys. You know, that's. Like- <laughs> <laughs> Like when I think about, when I think about good, like good liberal woke media, I always think about like, it's like you guys in the crooked guys, a bunch of white dudes talking about being, <laughs> it's good to see you, Good to see you all. You are, well, I'm,
1: doing, I'm a, doing huge our, fan.
4: I'm a huge fan of Midas touch and all the stuff you guys are doing. So, you know, I'm, I'm giving you shit being a white guy myself. I can make, I can give you shit about being white guys. So, <laughs> and,
1: and, and I'll throw it right back at you, John. So the circus, you think that is an appropriate name now, given like, it doesn't really do it justice. It's kind of like the horror shit show yeah. post-apocalyptic. I don't know if that makes a good title, but you thinking <laughs> about a name change? No, we're not. Um, and you know, it's funny you say that because, you know, we just
4: had the story the guy who is the lead uh, TV writer at the AP, Dave Bauter wrote a story at, to, to kind of like at the beginning of our second half, as you said, second half of our sixties. And I can't believe it. Like I say it now, like we've been on the earth now almost six years and it freaks me out. Like, cause it's like, Time flies. Number one and number two. Really, six years. Fuck, you know. Um, but he wrote a piece, and his thing, his question was, you know, what happens to the circus when the circus has left town? And it's like, Dave, like, really? You think the circus, Like, what? What do you, What does that mean? Like, I mean, yeah, Trump's no longer president, but he's not, not still on the scene. Number one, if that's what you mean, just you know, right. Trump. But I, I, you know, I've been saying for years that I think Trump's a, a symptom, not a cause, and and the stuff that's fucked up is just as fucked up, and maybe more fucked up than it was before. So. You know the 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 name of the show show Dave Nevins, the, the president of Showtime, named the show when we started it back at the end of 2015, very like with the first episode was in January 2016, but when we were when we were launching with those guys, it was his idea. And we were sort of like, Wow, you know, that's kind of trivializing. Like, well, people think that we're like, you know, making like that we're not taking politics seriously. Well, people think that like we're treating it like a game or something, like it's not serious. We're like, you know it's it, but it is politics is circus. It's like, there's a, there's a performative quality to it. And there's, you know, acts of, of daring and and death defying political courage. And there's obviously clowns and there's all kinds of stuff that are present in our politics. (laughs) And if we, you know, if we take, if we do, people are going to judge us for what's on the screen, not for the title. And the title, he was like, I think it's going to be kind of a circus. You know, Trump had just gotten in the race six months earlier. And as it turned out, the title seemed to work, you know, uh, in a way, it was prescient, right? In some sense, and for four years of Trump being in office, people would say, "Man, you know, how did you guys come up with that name? It's so perfect." And you know, that whole that meme, which was, you know, elect a clown, expect a circus, or you know, whatever that that thing was. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like it worked really well, and now. No, you know, we've never changed the success. The brand is the brand. We are what we are now. But I, but I would, but I would say, you know, if you look at the House Republican Caucus, you look at at Ron DeSantis, you look at like most. I mean, like, dude, there's like the circus has gotten more surreal, and it's gotten more, as you said, you know, and post. It's like we are in this weird apocalyptic, end times kind of vibe ever since COVID kicked in with all that plus everything else. It's darker. It's like a very like it's a dark. It's a dark pathological surreal circus but it's still a
0: circus
1: right and in this (laughs) surreal circus one of the things this week you know everyone's talking about the the debt ceiling yeah um and this idea you know that the democrats believe that they could tie the debt ceiling to a spending package a standard spending package and they believe they could work with republicans in a bipartisan way get this debt ceiling raised um which How could you work with this party at this point that at this point are pro-COVID sniffing at this point? I don't know what else to (laughs) describe the GQP. They literally are pro-COVID and these are the people you want to negotiate with and think they're going to support keeping the government open?
4: You know, I think it's, well, I mean, I, I do think it's not unfair to call a lot of the Republican party, most of it, it's like a, it's a death cult now, right? I mean, there's like a yeah. weird, there's a dark, dark, dark part of the party that is like, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, so, 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 un, so untethered from science and, and, and common sense that you can't help but actually think they are a little bit weirdly pro COVID in, in their, in that, in the, in effect, even if not in, in, in ostensible purpose. I don't think there's any illusion on any Democrats part that they are going to be quote working with Republicans to get the debt ceiling passed. And I do think that they thought that in, in measuring McConnell, who has been throughout this period saying, we're not going to give you any votes. We're just not, you're going to, have to do this yourselves. Right. And, and I think there was a little bit of a belief and and I don't know, we may they may turn out to be right. Um, that in the end that McConnell would threaten and threaten and threaten. If you bend down this path before, you know, we raise the debt ceiling every few years, it happens. And there's always this, there has been in the last decade or so, there's always this game of chicken where, um, we're Republicans, not Democrats, Republicans threaten to not, you know, to not do this thing and then eventually capitulate. Um, and I think that there's a, uh, there's a definitely a feeling among Democrats that, that in the end McConnell would capitulate because the, the economic consequences of not raising the debt ceiling would be so calamitous. And that the effects on the market and the effects on the economy would be so bad that he would be punished by his donors, right? That's the. It's not a. It's not like an optimistic thing of like McConnell will do the right thing for the country or McConnell cares about. (laughs) And it's not not that. It's just like he will. McConnell will always do what is the. The only thing they know about Mitch McConnell is always he will operate in the most narrow, most predictable way. His own power. Is the only thing he cares about, and his power is enhanced by him being majority leader of the United States Senate. And so, all of the calculus is always for him are: what is it? Does this thing, whatever the thing is, does it increase or decrease the odds of me becoming Senate Majority Leader again and giving me more power rather than less? And I think Democrats, even now, think that McConnell thinks that his that the that where the dark money comes from, where the where the donor class is, where the where he's going to need to raise this money to retake back the Senate as a as a caucus that. He would be punished by those donors if he were to let the United States slip off the clip, slip off the fiscal clip, so to speak, and and lose the full faith and credit of the United uh, of the United States, and and there was a giant market crash and a giant economic clash, crash crash. That made, I we'll see what happens, but I don't think it's naivete of like eventually Mitch McConnell will see the light of day and decide to hold hands and help us. I don't think that's it. I think it's. This guy will realize that the consequences for him and for the Republican party would be so severe that eventually he'll he'll cave and 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 we'll, and we'll'll we'll, we'll end up going along on purely self-interested grounds. and I don't know, we'll see.
1: And in your travels with the circus, what are you seeing in the streets? What are you seeing amongst the voters? You know, you went to California recently. You spoke with Gavin Newsom. The California recall seemed to be a rebuke of GQP policies. A lot of voters saying Gavin Newsom didn't go far enough in COVID protocols. We want him to do more things. And meanwhile, you see people like DeSantis, people like Governor Abbott, you know, just doubling down on death. Where do you think voters minds are at at this point?
4: Well, I think um, first it was great to be back in my home state. I'm from L.A. So I always like going back home. Um, it was nice to to start our first episode of this run was to get to go back home. And I've known the governor for a long time. And I had always thought that Newsom would be fine in this recall um, even before Larry Elder became an issue, even before the tide turned in the way that it did his main concern it was that another Democrat would run. And this was a controversial thing you guys know, you know, there were a lot of Democrats when it looked close that were like, wait, this is a problem. Like if, if Newsom, the way that this works, right. is if he loses the recall, it then moves to the vote on all these other clowns. And, and so shouldn't we have a Democrat on the, on the ballot that if Newsom loses the recall, that we won't get stuck with our elder. Right. And the calculus there was that is true. And yet, you know, if, we, if you have a Democratic option, that that will lose focus. The focus has to be on winning the recall. And, and, and the best way to keep people focused on winning the recall is to be like, it's a Republican or Gavin Newsom. So that's what the choice has got to be. And if you give them an alternative on the ballot, then people start to go, well, you know, I don't really like Newsom very much. I mean, I'm a Democrat, but like I, I could go vote for Jane Fonda, who was talking about running privately, and among a bunch of other people, Birgrosso, a bunch of people were talking about getting in, and they managed to keep those Democrats off the ballot. I think that's when Newsom was most worried, was he remembered, like a lot of people don't, that the reason Gray Davis lost the recall was not because Schwarzenegger was so powerful. That's not why he lost the recall. He lost the recall because Cruz Bustamante, his lieutenant governor, put his name in the, on the ballot, and it, it took the last couple percentage out that knocked Davis out in the recall, and then it became all Arnold, right? So that was the, the, the struggle out there, and they then got handed, they kept all the Democrats off, which turned out to be the right strategy. And then they got Larry Elder and it allowed them to do the things they wanted to do, nationalize the race and say, this is about you. You really want a Trump governor here in California, which clearly California did not. And do you want these anti-science policies? And Newsom said to me, actually he was in the, in the cut that, that aired, he said the thing that most helped him was what was happening in Florida and Texas. He was able to look and say to voters, look, do you want that? you know, they're going off the COVID cliff, you know, we're in the best, we're one of the best places in the country for handling this pandemic, make it a referendum on science. And I can win that referendum. And obviously you did overwhelmingly, Ben, you're right. I think there are people who thought, you know, um, Newsom could have gone much further on COVID, it turns out, and still, uh, and still kept his, kept his, his place in office. I mean, I feel for the guy because, you know, he could face another recall. You know, he's there's going to be, you know, if he he's got to raise another 50 million dollars now between now and, and October, or, uh, November of next year. And he's going to probably have another recall. Oh, people are going to start talking about recalling the guy, you know, within months of this recall. It's that fucking nuts out How there. How dumb is love, this
2: recall process?
4: It's the fucking dumbest process in the world. It's lunatic. And the notion that there should be recalled, the ability to recall a governor is a good thing. The notion that it should be as easy as it is to get that to, to make the ballot issue happen in California is fucking mental. It's madness. And the fact that that California Democrats have not changed that process in the state legislature is fucking just a sign of the fact that many California Democrats are, are, are lint heads because they should fix this thing. Um, And the answer to your question, the last question, Ben is, I think, you know, whenever anybody asks me like what people are saying, I'm always like, well, where, you know, the country is really divided and it's always been a big diverse country, but, you know, I know what people in California were saying about the recall, and I know you know what people in California broadly you know the best over in a big huge blue state like that. It's a very different state than a very different discussion than what you hear in um, in Texas or what you hear in Florida, where I think there's some signs that Governor Abbott and Governor DeSantis are going to start paying the price for being stupid. It's like the, the the Delta variant has raised the price on stupid and the political price. It's obviously raised the human price on stupid uh, for people who want to not take vaccines, for people who want to continue to act like assholes and, and wander around and, and, and take risks with their lives and other people's. Those people are paying the price in terms of public health. But you're starting to see the polling numbers for those guys weaken in a way that suggests that the political price for stupidity is also starting to go up. And, you know, I would never make a prediction that that either one of those states is going to be. You know, people have been predicting that Texas is going to go blue for right. you know for for the last decade. You know, the demographics of the state suggest that it could, um, and that it should be a state that's in play. And if it ever becomes, a really a swing state. You know, the whole electoral map gets turned upside down if Texas becomes a place the Democrats are really competitive in. And, you know, I think I don't I, I make no predictions, but I think better work can be a competitive candidate in Texas. There's no doubt yeah. about the fact that that governor's race next year is going to be real. And I think that, you know, Ron DeSantis is going to have a run also. So we will we you know, they're they're weakening. The numbers are, are weakening in a way that's not yet fatal for either one of those guys, but is suggestive of the fact that if this Delta variant continues to rage for months more, that you know, the political laws of physics have not been repealed completely. And, you know, you kill enough of your own constituents and you're perceived as killing enough of your own constituents. Eventually, the bottom is going to drop out and you're going to become a, a, a an embattled incumbent. And I think that's where those two governors are headed.
2: Right. And along those lines, and you, you sort of answered this a little bit there, but do you think what we just saw in California and the response to COVID in California and the way voters perceived it, do you think this is a broader national indicator or do you think it's a matter of Blue states becoming bluer and red states becoming redder. Do you think it's just this increased polarization across the country?
4: I think it's not. Um, I think it's a little bit neither of those things. In the sense that I, I, there's definitely polaris the 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 the, the, pol- the, the t- tendency towards polarization. You know, which is really the story of my of my career covering politics the last thirty years is you know the that polarization is the dominant. Thing that's happened in these and and the, and the great sorting of, of ideological sorting of the country is is for sure a, a, a huge thing. It's also the case that you know uh, in in the Sun Belt um, where populations are getting more diverse, um, those states are moving. Like what you're seeing really is like all the states that used to be battleground states, right? The the upper Midwest states, right? You're seeing how Ohio. Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, even though there are some states there that Biden won, many of them in in 2020, those states are are harder and harder lift for Democrats as they kind of become increasingly dominated by old white people. And the Sunbelt, you know, the future is Arizona going blue in 2020, is Georgia going blue in 2020 you know, North Carolina is, uh, you know, Virginia is now a blue state. North Carolina is a purple state. People think South Carolina is going to eventually be a purple state. It's not quite there yet, but that again, there's just a huge demographic transformation happening there. So California is the future in the sense of the demography of a lot of those Sunbelt states. They are not, they're getting bigger and they have an influx of some Republicans, but they have a much larger growing non-white population. Does that guarantee democratic victories? It does not. But California always is a harbinger for like what diversity does and what you know Newsom would tell you is that you know what happened in California after Pete Wilson and and the immigration thing in in the 90s is kind of happening on a national level to republicans right it's like that pe- the future of national politics looks a lot like what California looked like back then California's got a bunch of other problems but that is a harbinger in that sense i don't think that uh, and I'll tell you another sense. One last thing about this is, I think you know, I don't think it's like what happens in California stays in California. Like that, there's no lessons there. I think Democrats would be dumb to look at the way that that the way that the recall unfolded and the messaging that that Newsom and the Democrats embraced to win so overwhelmingly, to look at that and say, well, that's blue California. That has no impact outside the outside the the state of California. I think you know that. You know, the the longer we go into this pandemic and the more people die and the more people, you know, see breakthrough infections and see, you know, the craziness of the anti vax crowd and see all that, the more the Democrats can, you know, there will always be a big anti science contingent in America and there will always be a bunch of know nothing, idiot, moron, like cult of death people. But Mm -hmm. there's a much larger number of people who are like, I really just don't want to fucking die and I don't want my kids to die and like tell me how to like keep that from happening. And Democrats who can seize on and make a compelling political argument around, around the referendum, as Newsom put it, the referendum on science, I think there's a big lesson there for Democrats going forward. And I think that there are a lot of Democrats paying attention to what happened in California are gonna to try to replicate some elements of that tailored to their individual states and, and demographies and political circumstances.
2: And what do you think the Republican play is here? I mean, it seems like increasingly they're playing to a base that is getting maybe more passionate, but is getting smaller and smaller and smaller as the weeks and months go on. I see how that helps raising money. I see how that helps with getting retweets. I don't see how that helps to win statewide and national elections. What like what what is their plan here? I think their play is to is to
4: corrupt democracy and and turn the country into a lawless place and try to like you know I mean they're they're running the play. It's like you know they look at the at the at the the sorting thing we talked about, which is geographic. They look at the way in which there's this structural tilt towards um, parts of the country that are not as populated as other parts of the country that have outsized political party because of power, because of the way that our system works. And they look and say in the States where we can be dominant and where we have grown in dominance in terms of state legislative control, if we can, if we can gerrymander, if we can redistrict, if we can change voting rights laws, if we can, if we can restrict the number of non-white people who vote on the front end, and then we can seize control of how the votes are counted on the back end, we can subvert the democratic process and, and turn, I mean, I think the party has fundamentally become authoritarian and I think they're, they don't give a flying fuck about, about the, about, about democratic norms or about, about Democrat, their attitude is that the laws are here to be changed in, in, in accord with what serves their political interests and their power. And so I think their play is, you know, we are more ruthless and more willing to do whatever it takes to win than Democrats who care about democracy traditionally have been. And, and I think they're that's, that's the the playbook here is, you know, not, Hey, how do we compete on a level playing field with Democrats? Their playing field is, how do we tilt the playing field so we can win even though um, our uh even though our our message is not broadly popular and our and our appeal is increasingly narrow to the slice of the voting population that votes, so they're going to try to rig the game. I mean, we're watching it happen everywhere. It's like yeah. not there's not, it's not paranoia. It's like, you know, that's what's happening in state after state. Like it's right there in front of your face. It's like not a It's not like some liberal left-wing paranoid conspiracy theory. It's like, you know, take a look at these fucking voting rights bills and they're, you know, there's no other way to read
2: them. 100%. It's a five alarm fire, in my opinion, of our democracy is at risk and we have one party who's attacking it. And, you know, we have the, we're basically relying on the Democrats to try to save us from it. Uh, Do you think they're doing enough at this point? I mean, everybody is, no, uh, what, what more could they be doing? Well, I mean, I think uh, a lot of things, but you know,
4: the first, the, the first, the first, the first, the, fir- the first thing I would say is if you believe that the that the country that we are in a generational fight to save the country and to save democracy in America, which I do, and Joe Biden and people around Joe Biden pr- say they do, you know, you would have given more than one big speech about about voting rights over the course of your first eight months in office, and you would have said, you know, this is more important than anything else i mean there's a lot of things biden's trying to do that are important and I, I don't want to diminish the importance of of covid uh relief or of infrastructure or of healthcare or of climate all of those things are really important and i and i don't i don't begrudge. i'm not like criticizing those guys for being serious about those things they're trying to get done but you know if the democracy crumbles none of it matters people say you know well, we have the filibuster. We have all these problems. Republicans won't play along. It's like, yes, that's correct. All of those things are true. There are a lot of things. It's really hard. This is not easy, right? But I can tell you that you're not going to be able to pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Bill or or try to keep Republicans from being able to subvert the Constitution and the democratic process if you don't make it front and center and be like, we're going to talk about this every fucking day. We're going to. This is going to be the most important thing we do. I mean, Biden gave one big, very good speech. One. In, in eight months and Democrats on Capitol Hill have talked about how important this is, but it's not been like the way that passing Obamacare was for, the, for Obama's administration, where that was the thing we're doing for a year. Right. This is the most important thing. Everything else is important. We'll do other things. We can talk and walk and chew gum at the same time, but this is the main thing we're doing. That's not been the main thing that the Biden administration or Democrats in Congress have been doing for the last nine months. And again, trust me, I get it. We're in the middle of a pandemic. There are other important things. I'm not saying those aren't important, but if the democracy goes away, who gives a fuck? I yeah. mean, it's like, I, I, there's nothing more central than to my mind than because I believe, I truly believe like, you know, in, in the midterm elections in 2022 and the presidential election in 2024, we all said 2020 was the most important election of our lifetime. And it was because getting Trump out of office, a aspiring dictatorial authoritarian, uh, uh, you know, was was uh, existential, super important. But it now turns out that it didn't go away, and that the party has become completely co-opted by that by that set of issues and themes. And so, you know, 2022 and 2024 are now the most important elections of our lifetime. And on the backside of those, we could either be in a place that we all still want to live, or not. You know, I've never been in my life the kind of person I used to mock people who would say. If Bob Dole wins the presidency, I'm going to move to Canada. Or if George W. Bush wins the presidency, I'm going to move to Paris. Or if if John McCain wins the presidency, I'm going to leave the country. I'd be like, fuck you. You're not going anywhere. America is the best fucking country in the world. You're not going to go anywhere. Like you're not. You're going to fucking stay here and try to make it better and fight the fight. Or Mitt Romney, same thing. It's not like that anymore. It's like there's there's a world that I can see that's there that a few years from now, if things go bad, where I'm like, I have to leave the country. You know, like that's not a that's not a crazy thing because the Republican Party has gone that far and is that extreme and is that fundamentally anti-American that it's like,
2: yeah, that's what we're playing for now. And if that's if those are the stakes of the game, you got to fucking get serious about winning it. I find one of my indicators was uh, every day during the Trump administration, especially in those final years, I would wake up with just this anxiety. And especially in California, I'd wake up to the crazy tweets and everything, and I'd be like, what yeah. the fuck is happening today? And I'm starting to feel the same way now waking up to the news, which I think is a, a frightening indicator of, of what's happening here. But how do we deal with these Democrats in Mansion and Cinema who are so set on adhering to this archaic filibuster rule that they won't save democracy itself? How does President Biden deal with that? How do other members in the Senate deal with that? that? What, what do we do? I mean, I, I this is a
4: place where I'm going to sort of beg off because like, I'm not like in the political strategy game. I'm like, I, you know, I said before, like I'm, you know, I'm i I'm a journalist. Right. So I, 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 try to call it like I see it and and I'm not really, I mean, I, it's not my, it's not my, it's not my, I don't mean it's not my place, but right. I, I don't, I don't mean to, I don't, I'm not like a, I'm not like, a, I hate when pundits like pretend to be political consultants and strategists who are like, I'm going to tell the president <laughs> how to <laughs> do this. Right. I can tell you right now that on the basis of what I see that, that, that the scale of the effort to try to, to address the thing we were just talking about is not sufficient to the the size of the challenge. Right. That's a, I, that's the fact I can observe. It's not really my job to tell Joe Biden how to do it. And I, and I would say to progressives who get mad at Joe Manchin and, and Kristen Cinema, you know, Again, who I disagree with on a lot of things as a person, as a voter, like I, you know, they're not my they're not my brand of vodka, right? But like, I'll tell you, if you spend all the time in West Virginia, you'll discover rather quickly that like, if you're not Joe Manchin, you're gonna have a Republican, and and Joe Manchin is not my brand of vodka in terms of my personal policy preferences. But I think if you're a Democrat who really thinks that like a progressive Democrat could win a Senate seat in West Virginia you're out of your fucking mind. And, and that that there's no difference between Joe Manchin and Mitch McConnell, you're also out of your fucking mind. Like these, you know, understand it's a big complicated country and, and there are things that Democrats in different parts of this country have to do to, to stay in office because they're just, they would not win if, 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 if Joe Manchin became AOC. He would very quickly have, he'd get 36% of the vote and he'd be out of office tomorrow. And if you think it'd be just as good to have a Republican from West Virginia, I don't think you're living in a world that I understand because, you know, Joe Manchin has a ton of flaws, but he is not Lindsey Graham. You know, he's not Ted Cruz. He's not, you know. And um, and so I I have some sympathy for those people who are trying to work the politics. Now, you can have a reasonable discussion about whether there are things that they that, you know, are they, you know, sometimes. Do they bask too much in the limelight? Are they narcissistic? Do they really get it exactly right? What could they go a little further? You know, those are all reasonable discussions. But don't be confused that like Joe Manchin could be voting or advocating the way that 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 you know totally. That- that 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 uh that
2: cory booker does that's like, why that cinema has always been more be the fun. enigma to me because yes i mean mark because kelly won that race just yes. fine and she even ran that. on a more progressive platform than she's even adhering to now so that's the one that really confuses me more than anything that shift is and uh, and I, I guess you got to follow the money on it I, I really don't know what's behind it at the end of the day but something's going on there
4: i, I don't have the inside to too. i'm as before i'm as i'm as i agree a hundred percent agree that she's more uh, she's a more confusing character than than Manchin. Manchin's politics are much easier to read. She's from a much more diverse and much more not a blue state exactly, but a state where you, there's a lot wider latitude to be a little more progressive than she is.
3: And then, John, going yeah. back to our earlier conversation uh, around the circus, I, I really liked your metaphor about clowns. Who's the biggest clown <laughs> in the Republican Party? Some <laughs> very large class, cast of characters to choose from. Who's come with your mind? I'm picturing the clown car right now,
2: just packed with them.
4: It's hard to surpass, uh, it's hard to surpass Ted Cruz. It's hard to surpass, I mean, I I find, I mean, I, again, in the category of people who are, I actually think I have a pretty good read on Lindsey Graham, but he's pretty bad. I mean, Cruz is probably, I mean, there's something about the, I find, you know, to go back to our thing about uh, thing we were discussing, I can't remember. We were on air, or off air about no bullshit and and the power of of being anti bullshit. Right, is that the the ones that make me craziest, and I I don't know if it qualifies as clown or the ones who enrage me the most are the most flagrant hypocrites. Right, mm. and so in the Republican Party, the Harvard and Princeton educated Ted Cruz with his you know know nothing. Uh, uh, you know, attempts at fake populism. It's the, it's these, you know, it's the, those, these guys who have their fancy pants educations and they're like, and they're perfectly intelligent. They know better who then like do these things that are wildly um, both uh, stupid, pernicious, um, divorced from reality, anti-science, anti-reality, you know, the, and they're, and they're craving this. I mean, if you think about, I just can't think of a thing I've seen. That's more appalling at the pure human level, than being a guy, being Ted Cruz, and having a political candidate talk about my wife or his wife in the way that Ted, the way that Donald Trump did about Heidi Cruz, and then to see his slavish devotion to Trump after that, it's just—I'm like, like, I mean, how can you sleep at night? Like, like having you know, be like sucking up to the guy who trashed your wife that way, who, who accused your father of having been. Like uh, involved in the assassination of John F. Kennedy, it's like it's like it's so it's like comical. Like if I wrote it in a Hollywood script, people would like laugh me out of the building. Like <laughs> there nobody could be that craven, no one could be that repulsive. And then if you then you look at the guy, and it's like the combination is just like I don't know. I guess like he's at the top of my he's at the top of my list, but there's a long list, obviously.
3: Kind of kind of in the similar vein, anyone from the GQP disappoint you the most? Like I'm sure with all the work that you're doing with the circus and, and the recount behind closed doors like you're probably talking to some of these people and they're quasi normal but then the next day they're on fox trump from where sorry from what What? what's the, oh sorry the most- gqp we refer to the gop as the gqp yes. uh yeah. because of their q <laughs> full-on dive <laughs> 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 like, so, so so who, who, who from the gqp has uh like really disappointed <laughs> you the most like Behind closed I like doors. like that I'm you sure. just say,
1: Jordy? You just make up your own language. I know. He's yeah, like,
0: did you
4: keep I'm like, what the fuck is he talking about? I'm like, like it's, it's, sure. the guys have like some kind of like kind of like kind of weird mental defect there. I don't know what he's doing. Like, What's going on with Jordy? He's talking. He's missing. He's saying the wrong letters. This show has just gone totally off the rails, everybody. This is it's okay. It's all right. <laughs> it's all right. Um, Who's an example of something like that? You know, I mean, I think about like, I mean, if you think about all of the you know, it's the uh, so I think about like it's the Jeff Flakes and the and the Ben Sasses of the world, right? Who will go on the Senate floor and give these speeches about, you know, the importance of democratic institutions, the importance of democratic norms, who like, like, who are perfectly happy to when it costs them nothing to because, you know, I mean, first of all, all of them, like, there's none of them that who don't know Trump was nuts. All of them knew Trump was nuts, all of them. Every one of them knew he was nuts and every one of them knew it was dangerous and every one of them know. I mean, they all know all of them. So it's like, if you're asking like, is there, is there a distance between what these people say in private and what they see in public, they all are, they're not a single one of them who's not fully on board with the Trump is an idiot, Trump was a lunatic, Trump was dangerous, Trump was bad in, in private and then in public be like, oh, Trump is the best, Trump is the best, right? So there's that. And then there's these ones the senators, people like that, like Sass and and Flake are good examples of people who gave, who would occasionally, when there was no political cost whatsoever to it, would go on the Senate floor and give some speech that was like, that would be critical of of Trump or in favor of, you know, singing the praises of of Jeffersonian democracy and and how the importance of our institutions. And And they would, you know, even sometimes criticize Trump in some setting where there was no actually, nothing actually at stake. And then they would vote for his agenda and then they wouldn't vote to uh, convict him in an impeachment trial or you know they'd stick with him when the chips were down and they really had to like put something on the line that would have actually cost them that they knew like, OK, if you pay, if you cast this vote or do this thing, you're going to get primaried. And you know what? Who fucking cares? It's a job. It's a job like this whole idea. And I've said it myself. And I sometimes when I kick myself, I'm like, you know, political, you know, what, why do they act this way? Because they're afraid, you know, and they are afraid. right? They're they're afraid that if they cross Trump, that they'll be primaried and they'll lose their seat. And it's like, and then you think about it for a second and go, well, who fucking cares? Like if you got primaried and lost your seat, what would happen? You know, you go and work for some law firm, you'd be a lobbyist, you get paid more money than you currently get paid and you'd be fine. Like, it's not like it's not, nobody's <laughs> going to like, nobody's going like, to fucking kill your children or, or, or you're not going to be like living in the street, like That's a homeless true. person. You'd lose your job. You'd lose your job in the Congress. And get you know, a better you, job. <laughs> and get a job where you get pay, where you get paid more, and are and people would think better of you, and you would be more you able to sleep at night without having to take take massive quantities of of, of 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 antidepressants and sleeping pills in order to just quiet your your raging conscience, your like the what must burn inside some of these people, which is like the my God, you've sold your soul to the devil, motherfucker. And of course, they're all up at night probably. Some of them, the, the ones that have a conscience, are like up at night, kind of going, I can't believe what I'm doing. It's like, dude, you could have peace of mind, you could have more money. You could spend more time with your family. You could be actually have normal people think you're a good person. All of that could be yours if you lost this primary. Like, how is that a bad thing? Like, you know, (laughs) so what's the courage involved here? Like the worst thing that could happen, the worst thing that could happen to me is I could lose my Republican primary in Nebraska. And then I would be making more money and spending more time at home and have way more people who would think that I was like, like I'd acted on principle. I don't know. It's I. So yes, do I find that frustrating? Like, Like people who know better, you know somehow decide that like are such careerists and have such a limited imagination that they think that the worst thing that could happen to them would be to speak the truth and lose in a primary like that's the word that's the like their job their idea of what hell is it's like come on man like you know
1: grow up <laughs> here. and john <laughs> finally you having fun with the recount you know one of the things that i think was a big issue during the trump administration i don't think the media met the moment and in fact our to blame for a lot of the moment in the way the coverage was of Trump. What I like is that you were like, fuck it. I'm creating my own thing. You know, we're going to be, we're going to do it our way. We're going to get out pro-democracy messaging. Um, And you started from the ground up to build this thing. So what's that experience been like? And maybe just talk to our listeners about the recount and where it's going.
4: Yeah, it's been, thanks for, thanks for asking. It's been great. You know, I, um, you know, we started the company in, in, you know, in the spring of 2019. So we're like two and a half years old now. And, um, you know, the thought about it was at the outset was mostly like about that. There was this big change happening in how people watch news, right. Where, you know, uh, the, the world of television went from the the world of scarcity, the broadcast Um, thing where we had three networks and then four big networks. And that was how you watch TV. And then we had the 500 channel universe of cable, right? Where, you know, the ESPN got born and and CNN got born and and Nickelodeon and all these kind of like channels that would cater to people's interests in a certain thing. Now, you know, you guys know what's happening is, you know, the, the world we're moving to this nonlinear world where it's mobile and social. And people are like, you know, especially on the younger side, people are like, they don't watch cable tv anymore they, they they it's it's over the top and it's on demand and no one cares about the schedule and people live this much more complicated lives right where you're you're assembling and i'm not sure all of this is good or bad i'm just describing it right where people assemble their their how they understand the world through their through through this device, which is like, you know, the, the thing that people were people now, this is like the television, the new television is this, is this phone. That's not a original concept, but you know, hundreds of millions and hundreds of millions of minutes of video now watched on these phones. That was not the case even five years ago. Now it's like, that's how people like learn about shit. So we were like, if, if people don't in the same way that like that, that in that world of, of scarcity in that world that gave birth to broadcast television. There were certain, like the evening news was the right instantiation of that. It's like, that's, you know, everyone would gather on TV, watch at six o'clock or six thirty. cable news created a different, a different structure. The platform was different. And so people consumed it in a different way. Now we see that the way that people consume news and learn about the world and relate to politics is radically different now, but no one's really figured out how to make news for that environment. Like what would be a news product in video, not in text, but in video, that would be like where social and, and streaming kind of come together and where people are assembling their knowledge about the world and watching video on the fly, on the move, in much shorter form, not sitting down and watching an hour or three hours or seven hours of television, you know, or like, or with cable, which is mostly like, I got it here. I'm SMBC, I work there. It's on, Yeah, it's like wallpaper, right? Like it's on all the time. That's not how kids, they watch it. Nobody watches like that anymore, right? So we were like, how can we invent? a new news for that new world. Like that was what we wanted to do. And then there was the question of what it was going to be. And from the outset, I'm a political guy. I have a lot of other interests besides politics, but we could see it was the early 2019. We knew 2020 election was going to be a big deal. And politics has become a category that's as big as sports, right? You guys have seen this in the growth of your stuff, right? It's used to be politics was like wall street, right? Where it was like a big important part of the American economy, but people didn't really think about Wall Street except when there was a market crash, and people didn't really think about politics except on election day or for the last couple months before an election. Now it's like people talk part of the Trump effect; people think about politics, talk about politics all day long, and so we thought, well, we'll start with politics and try to make something new in video, and once we get good at that, um, we'll think about other places where power lives. So the company now is, you know, we're moving from having been. Primarily a social driven company that was about doing politics in short form video, really mostly for social media, primarily Twitter, to being a company that's doing all the places where power comes, where power lives. So that's, you know, Wall Street and Silicon Valley and Hollywood and. Uh, and the Fortune 500. And you know, if it's business, culture, tech, finance, science, if there's a place where we can hold power to account, we're going to go hold power to account. And we're going to try to do it in this way, in, the, in this modern way of how we consume video, where social and streaming are really the place where people consume news now. And that's the kind of vision for the company. And it's been awesome to your question, man. It's like, you know, I have worked at The Economist Magazine, New York Magazine, The New Yorker Magazine, Wired Magazine, you know, Wired was the real upstart in there, but some like big established magazine brands. I work at NBC and MSNBC, I work for Showtime. Um, They're all great. And it's great to work at places that have like brand identity and people like there's resources and people like make good shit and you have great collaborators. I love that, I love it. But there's nothing like starting from the ground up and being like, we have a blank, blank blank canvas here. We're gonna raise a little money we're going to bring 15 people together into a room and be like, we can do whatever the fuck we want. Like, come, come come here and sit in the room. We first six months of the company, we had a dozen kids and we sat down and said, well, How do we want to do that? Like, what do I do here? Like, you know, we can do anything. And we're not going to put anything out for the first six months. We're not even showing anything, anybody anything we're making. We're going to spend six months like in a skunk works and try to figure out a new way to use the existing video in the world and, and create kind of like a hip hop sampled curated experience of like that's the way we want to think about how to make stuff live in the world of fair use. there's you know there's a lot of video out there reassemble, reconfigure, make statements by recontextualizing and through editing and producing more than like building a news gathering organization, sending out correspondence and stuff. that's how we started. and now we're you know we're 50 some odd people now and and we're growing uh, again we made it through the pandemic, which was a tough uh, thing. We're but we're on the rise, and we're hiring people, and we have a lot of ambitious plans. And to see the thing grow from twelve people in a room with like a computer and a television, and be like, okay, like what do we want to make? We'll be creative and try anything. To um, you know, it's not we're not a big company, but we didn't have to lay anybody off during the pandemic. We managed to make it through, made it through intact, and and we raised some money this spring that gives us the ability to go and take a bigger swing in the next year. Or so. Um, everyone check out the therecon.com and, and see us on Twitter and see us on Instagram and a bunch of other places. And um I think, you know, we've been, we've we've taken to heart the notion of we want to try to make something that feels modern, we want to hold power to account, and we want to be always every day, totally no bullshit and anti-bullshit simultaneously. And and that's you know, been the ethos of the company from day one, and it continues to be our ethos. And I think, you know, to the extent, you know, we did a billion 300 million uh, video views on Twitter in 2020, which is a very large number that I can't really quite imagine that we did that. Um, so it's worked to some extent now but we have a lot of a lot of green fields to go graze in and a lot of uh, worlds to conquer that we're gonna try to try to go get in the next uh, in the next year or so so um,
1: it's gonna be fun. And it's been exciting to watch everybody listening. Go check out the recount Midas Touch. Me and my brothers are big fans, big supporters of all the work the recount is doing. I'm sure the Midas Mighty who are listening know that we always try to repost videos where we see them. We love what you're doing over there, John. John, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. We really appreciate it. John Heilman, thank you. Thank you again.
4: Who's that guy on that, on that, on that bookcase behind you? What's that? There's a dude
1: like, like hanging off the edge there. What, what that? That guy right there? Yeah, that guy. Yeah. He's like a pumpkin guy. He's a pumpkin guy. Yeah, okay. he's like a heavy pumpkin guy for, there's a lawyer in uh, the downtown courts that <laughs> yeah. looks just like that man when I go to the courthouse and he's got like these, <laughs> and he goes from courthouse to courthouse. He's an appearance attorney. So when I saw that at a Target or whatever I was, I just said that reminds me of that lawyer. <laughs> and what, is that, what does that t-shirt say? I'm Ben what? That's the t-shirt, oh, on, you. Says, no, the t-shirt uh, on you. The t-shirt on This one I'm, says, ben. I'm Ben doing Ben
4: things. I'm doing, been doing, Ben things. Jordy, what do you got on there? What's on, on favorite son? I just favorite visited my son.
3: parents, and so they gave me this shirt because I went. Is home he? And... A, is he actually the favorite son? Well, I got my I'm shirt like... back there too. So oh, well, there's a bunch of favorite sons. Mine hasn't
2: <laughs> arrived, but let's not talk about that. But <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> Brett,
0: well,
4: Brett's, Brett's Brett. the middle. Brett's the middle child. <laughs> Brett's, so, Brett's, so Brett's like Brett's like I, I'm not going to show you what's on my. So I'm wearing Midas Touch
2: way. merch. Shout Ooh. out to the Midas Mighty. We got to get John and John will have to send you our merch. And everybody, make sure you are. Following the recount, make sure you go to the recount.com and make sure to watch the new season of The Circus. Uh, second part of the sixth season premiered this past Sunday, and it is really one of the best shows on TV. Brett, are you trying to kick Heilman out? Like, yeah, what chatting do you doing, right we're, do 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 we're, we're hanging I'm out. I'm trying to give Heilman He's the, the fourth love. Brother of now. This, I'm trying that to give Heilman fun. the love of this show. People got to know what? to watch The Circus. So, the best show All on right. TV, everybody. I appreciate all those shout outs, but, uh, I like, you know, I,
4: I've never, I was a only child, so I've never had siblings. And like, I'm feeling like a little, like a little, like a house brother here. I'm feeling like I'm a, let's like,
1: let's go brother. brother Heilman or uncle Heilman
4: Yeah. Uncle Heilman oh man. Just don't call me grandpa. <laughs> <laughs> um, I like the fact that you guys have this fucking. A, hey, I like the Midas Mighty is a great thing. Number one and number Hell two, yeah. like I like that you guys have rolled on the merch thing. That's a very like that's like a for most like people in pol- who do anything by the way like political media, it's like the last people think people think of it's. If you guys are showing your Hollywood, you know your Hollywood juju there. It's like you know yeah of course we're in the merch business guys. Look at
1: all these fucking t-shirts like fucking great. Um, As Jordy would say, that's the best way to bring down the GQP. home <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, John, for joining us. We really appreciate it. Everybody check out the recap. Thanks, Thanks, guys. Great Great to be with you. We'll be right back after these messages.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
1: Welcome back to the Midas Touch podcast. So great having Heilman
3: on the show. Jordy, GQP was one of the funniest <laughs> moments. You know what? We were saying it the whole interview. I don't know. There's something that you guys give off. Let's pick on Jordy vibes, I think. And so John took that as his moment. I'm going to, I'm going to tease the youngest brother a little bit. But yeah, we didn't even it. cue
2: Heilman into the teaser. He just decided yeah. to. He, he picked up that energy from you, I think. That was very funny, that the GQB. Because we, so, we say so, it so naturally on our end that it's just become a part of our vernacular. But I guess to some people, they're like, what the fuck are you talking you about GQB? GQB? What, are doing? what are you just saying, letters? Are you just saying words? <laughs>
1: Jordy, the way you delivered it, though, is priceless, too. I'm, I love uh, the
2: explanation, too. You know, because of QAnon and the
1: Republican Party. So you took the G in the good. (laughs) So good, Jordy. Let's talk about this issue over raising the debt ceiling, which the Democrats allowed to happen three times under the Trump administration. Um, you know, the idea of having a debt ceiling traces its roots back to the earliest or early parts of the 20th century, and there's just this idea of You want to control the debt that the country uh, uh, incurs. You want to control the amount of treasury bonds being issued. Sounds reasonable Sounds reasonable. You want to make sure that you're able to um, pay for things that you've promised in the past um, by basically raising. I think the best way to think about raising the debt ceiling is kind of like raising the limits on a credit card so that you could kind of pay back like past people or past companies or past things that you owe money to. And so in the past, you'd go, okay, let's raise that so we can kind of pay back people who we owe money. So things can basically function. I think that's a very basic way to think about raising the debt ceiling because you need a functioning government because if you're unable to pay back Uh, past debts. It's kind of like you could go into default the same way if you don't pay back your own past debts, you go into default. So that's really what the discussion is about. I mean, it's obviously a little more complicated than that, but it's about paying back past debts. And here, these are debts that Trump
2: incurred. These are debts that the Republicans who are- How is that possible, is- Ben? Trump promised to eliminate the debt in his first year of office. I just, I just don't understand. How much debt did he run up? He promised oh, to eliminate it. So. Trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars. Like of debt. $7.8 trillion dollars worth yeah. of debt? Yeah. So yeah, following your the credit most- card analogy, Donald Trump put on $7.8 trillion of, of debt to America's credit card. And now that the bill is due, you have people like Mitch McConnell and the entire Republican Party Going, oh, the Democrats, you take this on your own. You got this. You got it. You figure it out. You, you guys got this. Figure, figure it out. But it's like even more devious than that because they're not just saying, Democrats, you do this on their own. They're saying, okay, you try to do this on your own, even though we're saying, oh, yeah, it's all you. It's all you. It's all you. We're going to filibuster it and fuck you. We're, we're, we're not only going to tell you to do it on your own, we're going to block you when you try to do it on your own and then go ha you failed (laughs) like it's the most cynical thing of politics and like you said ben this was raised three times under trump and the one time in as far back as i can remember and I think as far back as American history is concerned, since we've had the debt limit, that we've actually not increased the debt limit and that our credit has actually been downgraded was in 2011 under Barack Obama when the Republicans pulled the same stunt. So, you know, John Heilman was talking about this game of chicken that the Democrats and Republicans are playing. Well, I wouldn't be so sure here that Mitch is going to back away from this game of chicken. He will happily take out the entire United States economy and, affect effect, the global economy in order to try to score some short term political points that he thinks he'll get from this race.
1: So the Democrats are confronted with this issue. We need to raise um, the debt ceiling. And how do we do that? And so there is a thought, well, can we put that in a reconciliation bill um, that's part of this overall uh 3.5 trillion dollars in spending do we do we put it in there um you know and and the reality is is that the democrats say to themselves this is something that should be done on a bipartisan basis because we did this um during the trump administration in the past other political parties Reach compromise because would the other party really want to destroy the United States of America? And I think it takes a long time to go through a reconciliation process and for something like this to be treated as reconciliation. So there's a time concern also about why you don't include it in a reconciliation um, bill. And then I think the Democrats also, from a political perspective, just didn't want to tie raising the debt ceiling, which deals with past on this idea of the current spending bill, which deals with future, because this 10-year spending bill in the future kind of pays for itself with the way there's going to be additional taxes in the future on the super wealthy and in other areas. And it kind of gives the appearance that the future spending um is going to incur a lot of debt if you attach a debt ceiling to that bill so i know i'm playing a little inside baseball but i'm giving you some of the rationale about why they maybe didn't include it in the reconciliation bill so then the question becomes well let's attach the debt ceiling raise to a basic government spending bill just a a a regular one and regular kind of course
2: you might say the term Uh, cr which stands for continuing resolution
1: to, to run the government and to and to, you know, and to operate the government. Um, and there it would not be through a reconciliation. And basically Mitch McConnell and the Republicans, I think in a way that we probably all could have predicted, and I think the Democrats should have been able to predict it. They're like, no, fuck it. We don't care we'll destroy this country. And at the end of the day, should we be surprised? These are the people who literally are cool with 700,000 Americans dying. Don't give a shit. You think they give a fuck about America's credit? Like they don't give a shit about that. What they have their minds bent on is these authoritarian aims and designs. And that's all they care about. Even if America
2: fucking suffers like no other that's what's at stake that's what the gqp want and let's talk about what suffering means if the debt ceiling is not increased it could likely it will likely lead to a new recession it will erase up to six million jobs experts say and it could cause unemployment to spike as high as nine percent and so what the republicans are hoping here is that oh if that does happen they get to blame president biden and the democrats play that
1: clip Red, of mitch mcconnell that, uh, that the Democrats put out where he talked about raising the uh, debt ceiling under Trump and then what his current view is. It's kind of like uh, back then and now.
2: So you are expecting then to raise the debt ceiling once again? Of course. We, yeah. will,
0: never, we will never have America default. Well, we raise the debt ceiling because America can't default. I mean, that would be a disaster. Republicans are united in opposition to raising the debt ceiling.
1: Doesn't that just say it perfectly, Brett? I mean, that's, how do you get more fucking hypocritical than that?
2: Oh, uh, we could never, uh, we would never allow the debt ceiling to expire. First of all, you fucking did it already. Like before that happened, you had done it already under a democratic president. We would never do that to the American economy. You've done it before. So for those and- listening, I was in 2019. Yeah, that was 2019 under Trump. He said, of course, we would never let the debt limit. Exist. We would never, never. We would always raise the debt we're ceiling. We I mean, would never do that. We would never do that are <laughs> Mitch McConnell? Yeah. Yeah. Ben's just we're. like missed their impression today from starting with me to Mitch we'll McConnell. With just, a little you know, bread
3: I'm on the radio. You know, a, ca- yeah. Calling it back. And I didn't want to say it because I didn't want to psych you out before the Heileman interview. But you definitely do that radio voice but but your analogy is right though why like why would they care why would the republicans care about the debt when they don't care about your life when they don't care about the lives of their constituents, why the fuck are they gonna care about the dollars and rate? It's so
2: pathetic. What we need now is we need Mitch McConnell to come around. And I don't see that happen. I mean, do you guys see that happening? I don't no. see, that. I don't, I don't necessarily see that happening at this current point or the Democrats need to all get on the same page and they need to be able to pull these various factions together from the quote unquote progressive wing to the quote unquote moderate wing of the party and get people like Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema to say that they would, get rid of the filibuster in order to save the credit of the United States of America. And so I heard Pelosi speak earlier today, Pelosi and Schumer. They seemed pretty confident that they'll be able to get together a mutually agreed upon move forward. Uh, I think this is an ongoing situation, ongoing negotiations um, across all these various bills, all these various plates that Democrats are spinning, whether it's the Build Back Better bill, the standard bipartisan infrastructure bill, the continuing resolution, the debt ceiling, all this is at play right now. All this is in negotiations. And we'll just have to see. We'll have to monitor. And see, but it's pretty clear to me that uh, Pelosi and Schumer and Biden know the stakes of this, and that they're going to do everything that they can to keep the government going because it could be catastrophic if uh, if they let Mitch McConnell win this one. So we will have more uh, to you about this as as we find it out.
1: He's funny. You said stakes, and uh, we're talking about our other sponsors, and uh, making me a little bit hungry uh, right <laughs> now. I want to talk about Wild Alaskan Company. Ooh, for good a transition. Second. It's Not only is it a great transition, it's great food. We all know we should be eating more fish to get our omega-3s and protein, but the seafood counter can be intimidating. Which fish tastes the best? What type of cut? Can you really be sure about the quality? Wild Alaskan Company takes the guesswork out of buying wild-caught seafood. Wild Alaskan Company delivers high-quality, sustainably sourced, wild-cut seafood right to your door. Choose from salmon, cod, halibut, and more, or a combination of them. And every month, there are different specials to explore. You can adjust, pause, or cancel your membership anytime time and they offer 100 percent satisfaction guaranteed or your money back i made fish tacos this past week with the wild alaskan company membership i look like a superstar with my girlfriend i made an incredible
2: made dish last night i did halibut um and i did it with like a breadcrumbs and and lemon and it was absolutely incredible with some string beans on the side and had like a gourmet meal made from this and the fish was so good tasting and uh and, and I have so much more because a lot of a lot of fish comes in these boxes that you order. And I'm personally a whitefish guy, so I told them that I wanted uh, you know <laughs> a, a box of whitefish. And boy, do I have plenty of that. And uh, the halibut, like really, I I love halibut. This was incredibly good. And uh, highly recommend Wild Alaskan Company. Right
1: now, you can get fifteen dollars off. That's Ooh. fifteen dollars off your first box of premium seafood when you visit wildalaskancompanycom Midas. That's Wild Alaskan A L A S K A N. Company dot slash Midas for fifteen dollars off your first box. That's wildalaskancompany.com dot slash Midas. Make sure to use our address, that URL, to let them know that we sent <laughs> that you that what that URL. That URL. <laughs> Damn, I wish that <laughs> could stay in the pot. No, oh, that that's definitely stays so in the pot. How
2: do you? You know what do you call it? URL? I call it a URL. A URL. URL. Oh my gosh. Oh my you God. Don't call it a no year one, year nobody Brad, calls it a URL. Brad,
3: please finish the ad read.
2: Okay. It's a URL. It's a URL. Everybody. I just like, every time I see this, it's, it's wildalaskancompany.com slash Midas. Let's get that straight. M-E-I-D-A-S. And make sure to use our URL to let them know that we sent you. I just, like every time I do, every time we do these reads, I'm like, all right, do the Midas Touch podcast listeners get like the best deals the on the planet. Stuff. I don't even know how, like, how, how, do, how are they making money? $15 off. Thank you so much, Wild Alaska Company, for sponsoring this episode.
1: And did you see, just uh, just to talk about some GQ peers right now, to also see what's at stake. I think everybody's seen right now that Marjorie Taylor Greene despicable video where she's got her assault rifle and she's shooting at a car that says, uh, social, I don't even know if that, she had like a bazooka. I don't even know what type of weapon Um, that she had there. It looked like a weapon of war, destroy, you know, where it blows up a car that says socialism, just the level of performative bullshit there. So silly. Midas did a great video (laughs) that basically showed Marjorie Taylor Greene, what she really was destroying in the cars that blew up were, okay, free education, better health and, and access to healthcare focusing on climate change and making sure- Living. That living, <laughs> you know, Life. and that's, and that's what these people are against, you know? And so you kind of go all over the spectrum. You've got these like just wacky wild GQ peers like Marjorie Taylor Greene. You got your Lauren Bobberts who, Lauren Boebert's going to lose her seat in the next election. Colorado was redistricted. I did an interview recently though and I said, part of me though wishes that it wasn't redistricted or that it wasn't going to be redistricted um because and a bipartisan committee did the redistricting in colorado because i think she would have lost anyway like she's detested there um
2: and you know people are embarrassed by her her constituents all the interviews we always see people are incredibly embarrassed by her and meanwhile she's using her campaign as if it's like a personal slush fund and she was Forbes reporting
1: yeah forbes reporting right brett that uh uh, that Bird admitted in FEC documents to improperly paying rent and utilities
3: with their campaign funds. Yeah,
2: just, just taking her campaign funds, spe- spending it on her own rent, her own utilities.
3: Well, look, she knows the writing's on the wall. That's why she's doing this. She knows she's about to get pushed. So she's trying to abuse the power of her seat. This comes herself. after she logged
2: 38,712 miles for reimbursement. That's $22,000 worth of reimbursement that she got back. Let me just explain to you how long 38,702 miles is. And this is what she claims she drove in a three month period. It's a longer difference than the entire circumference of the earth. (laughs) And so she claimed that's how much she drove in the first three months of her uh, time in office. Um, I mean, she's a scam artist. She's a fraud. And now it's catching up to her, the FEC, that says that they are likely to take punitive action against her. Um, And we will see what that action is. Once again, I'm going to say the same thing to the FEC that I said to the Democrats earlier on. Do not try. Do. Do take punitive action. Do not consider punitive action. Take punitive action punitive action. Stop letting people get away with the bullshit or they will keep on doing it.
1: Finally, Susan Collins, what a sham. You know, we warned people about that election. One of my biggest disappointments in 2020 was Susan Collins winning because I thought there was a real good shot for Democrats um, out there in Maine. I thought that, uh, you know, Susan Collins really represented this real hypocritical tries to pretend to be reasonable and moderate but at the end of the day just sits there and enables trumpism and in many ways is equally as complicit as the marjorie
2: taylor green i think green. she's worse honestly. like to me she's just as radical by the way she's just as radical to me as marjorie taylor green as oh, yeah. lauren Boebert. she just kind of like what time. heileman said
1: huh like when heileman was like there people like that disappoint me the most like yeah, the susan
2: 100%. And she her, one of her whole things was even when she you know pushed brett kavanaugh through and everything she said roe versus wade is a precedent this this will never be overturned this will never happen and now we're seeing the process of the destruction of roe versus wade play out right in front of our eyes and susan collins suddenly not so concerned she seemed she was often very concerned in the past as you remember suddenly Susan Collins not very concerned about what's going on, and there are bills that are being put forward by Democrats to protect Roe versus Wade, to codify Roe versus Wade into law in order to protect the rights of childbearing persons. Yet you have now Susan Collins saying that she wouldn't support that legislation. And why? uh she can give whatever excuse she wants but it comes down to what we were saying she's a fraud she doesn't believe any of the things that she said and if you go along with what she says and not her actions then you too are complicit in this and that's why i think she is not only just as bad as the marjorie taylor greens and lauren boberts she is in fact worse i agree with you and you think about
1: it it's like we talked about like the joe mansions we've talked about um you know i mean, like he's not even facing an election anytime soon. I mean, she's not facing an election time soon. So her next election, she's 68 years old. Her next election will be in 2026. Um, She's got, uh, you know, she, she, if you look at polling in Maine, they are um, obviously supporters of the right to choose. And here you have though a representative there, um, representative in the Senate, in a in a in that doesn't have to run for re-election you know allowing and enabling the texas law to take place enablers are just as complicit in many cases as those extremists who enacted in the first place and so that's what's disappointing what's not disappointing is when susan collins looks at trump uh, leading an insurrection and says that's disappointing what really has been the biggest disappointment is susan collins want to thank everybody for listening to the midas touch podcast today great episode special thanks to our sponsors the wild alaskan company and magic spoon and of course special thanks to our guest John Heilman, executive editor at The Recount and host of The Circus on Showtime. Check out The Circus. Make sure you say what's up to our sponsors. Make sure you give this podcast five stars. It helps our ratings. It helps us stay on the top of the podcast charts. Give it five stars. Give it a nice review. Check out our other podcasts. Kremlin File, Legal AF, Zoomed In, Mea Culpa. We're working on a few more. We're excited to announce those. Just you wait. The, <laughs> just you wait over the coming weeks. Check out the Midas Touch merch. Check out store.midastouch.com to check out all the new Midas Touch merch. And maybe you learned a new word on this Midas Touch podcast. And Earl... A URLR <sighs> and Earl. Thank you so much Midas Mighty we appreciate your support as always keep fighting for democracy we'll see you next time on Ben you got Brett you got Jordy Jordy take us out
3: Shout out to the Midas Mighty